This week's episode is sponsored and brought to you by He Lives. That's the uh, jewelry company. Well, not just jewelry, but uh, it does lots of things like that. You may remember the episode we had a while ago with Daniil uh, Kunz, who talked to us about the journey she had in trying to create something that would help her testify that Christ lived and at the same time identify her as a Christian and open up dialogue with other Christians. Uh, and she's produced some beautiful stuff. So you can go to he-lives.net and there you'll find uh, feminine versions of that jewelry, but also masculine versions. And they have all sorts of other things you can get. Like there's a cool leather bracelet with it on there that I think is really cool. This may be a hint for my dear spouse for Christmas, uh, but a lot they're fantastic Christmas gifts, all sorts of versions of it. And I think it really does allow us to testify of Christ and it allows us to uh, dialogue and build bridges with our other Christian friends. I think it's a wonderful thing uh, and and can just uh, uplift us and help us focus on Christ. So go to he-live.net. It's great stuff. Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have helped them become more real to us because we believe we need to draw all the power out of them that we can. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I have with me uh, by now, if you've been a, a longtime listener of the podcast, a, a familiar uh, friend and guest, or maybe we could even call him a co-host at this point. Uh, this is Dr. <laughs> Andrew Skinner, uh, who... Uh, I don't know that I need to fully introduce again, other than just to say that he has done uh, just like about everything you can think of and is a fantastic individual and scholar. So welcome, Andy. Thank you so very much that you read that introduction just as my mother wrote it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, she wrote a shorter one this time yeah. than last time. Wow. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, just so good to be with you. Thank you very uh, today much. Today we're going to introduce the book of Revelations, and and uh, well, I guess we, I should say we're just starting the book of Revelations, and uh, or Revelation, I should say, and um, uh, doing the first couple chapters. So why don't you just take us wherever you would like to go, and what has made it real for you? Okay, thank you very much, and it is a privilege to be with you. So uh, if you're uh, following the New Testament sequentially, uh, you will just have finished reading Jude's short letter. And that really primes us for more prophecy. Uh, chapter, well, there's only one chapter in Jude. Verse 6 talks about uh, the mention of the first estate. It's the only biblical mention of the first estate and angels who fell. And then in verse 9, uh, kind of demonstrates how ancient writers used quotations from the Apocrypha uh, in their own inspired writings. And then verse 14 preserves a prophecy by the great seer Enoch about the second coming. So you're you're ready then for more revelation. And uh, you not only get uh, some revelation, you get revelation on steroids. The, the book of Revelation opens in an interesting way. So if our listeners can try to picture in their minds a prisoner on a volcanic island that's not very big, it's uh, about, what, three or four miles wide and maybe about 10 miles long. It's a volcanic island, and it's Sunday, the Christian Sabbath, and uh, when we scan uh, the island, we see a man who's involved in his Sabbath devotions, personal devotions, and he hears a great voice behind him, summoning him. Uh, 
And he turns around and he sees this radiant being who's surrounded by indescribable light. And of course, the person who's being spoken to is John the Apostle or John the Revelator or John the Beloved, goes by several different names. Uh, he is the Beloved of Jesus, I think, not uh, because of any particular elite status, but because he is a family member. He's a cousin of Jesus, just as John the Baptist was. And, uh, and the being behind John then says he is Alpha and Omega, and that the recipient, this John, is about to receive a great revelation, a great vision. And he is to write uh, what he sees and what he hears. And this revelation then, once recorded, is to be sent to the seven churches in Asia. And uh, the, the number seven, as we uh, have discovered, is a, a symbolic number. And so it's possible, as some scholars want to suggest, that it's not just seven specific churches, but it really will go to all of the branches of the church that John has access to. Yeah, seven kind of representing all of them. So he chooses seven yeah. specific ones to represent all of them. Exactly. And, uh, and seven uh, is this symbolic number, and it means wholeness, completeness, has the connotation of perfection. And uh, written out in Hebrew, uh, the letters that form the number seven can even be vocalized or pointed with the Hebrew points to represent the covenant. So it's, it yeah. is a, a packed, a symbolically packed number. Yeah. And, uh, and John is on the Isle of Patmos because he's been banished there. Uh, during the uh, Roman, this period of Roman history, uh, the, the cult of emperor worship uh, began to be enforced under the emperor Domitian. Domitian is, um, uh, comes from a very famous family. And he's had uh, his father and his brother precede him as emperors. And he ranged from about 81 to 96. And usually dates are not important. You know, you, you end up with a pile of dates and you wonder what to do with them. But in this case, it helps no, us you, to appreciate. You eat a pile of dates. I just yeah, want to be clear That's true. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, date bombs swimming on the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, Sorry, I had to throw a dad joke in when I could. Yeah, you, well, you, you're, you're just that kind. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh the emperor Domitian, who reigns from about 81 to 96 BC, begins to demand that people refer to him as Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. And thus, we suppose that this revelation was written down by John somewhere between 90 and 96. It could have been earlier than that, but most scholars proposed 94, 95 AD as the date for the writing down of this revelation or the book of Revelation. Which would make John fairly old by this point. Exactly. But remember, John, um, he's the one that has asked the Savior if he can linger right. longer, uh, if he can uh, uh, be around 
not taste of death so that he can bring others into yeah. the kingdom. And so probably in his case, age doesn't mean a whole lot to him. Now, uh, other than that, he's had us. a lot of experience by now. Right? He he's... really has. He's been in so many important places and, and been a part of so many important scenes that he himself describes in his gospel. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, th this is uh, interesting because John will not worship uh the emperor he will not engage in emperor worship and because of that then he's been exiled to this prison colony and i've been to as you have been to patmos and it really doesn't have a lot to offer in terms of attracting people to it uh, now of course it's a tourist site because it's been made famous by the new testament but really in john's day it really was a rock pile and so uh he is um, he's suffering, as it were, for the cause of Christ. And that's, I think, an important principle to realize is that at some point, most of us are going to have to stand up for Christ. We're going to have to say, I I'm planted in gospel sod, and I'm not going to move. Uh, when tough times come, when persecution comes, although this isn't really a, a period of tremendous persecution, uh, but when trials and tribulations come and we're tempted to to blame God or to be upset, I think John is the model. We just have to say, uh, I'm not I'm not going to go there. Uh, this this is what I believe. This is what I know. Uh, and this is the kingdom that that uh, I um, stake my life on, as John did. And so um, this this. A book of Revelation begins with the first three chapters as an introduction, and then the rest of the chapters that follow from chapter 4 through about chapter 22, which is the last chapter, we get an impressive discussion of, uh, of not only John's day, but also a future day. A lot of time is spent talking about seven seals the seals uh, represent a uh, thousand year periods of history, according to section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And it's interesting to look at the title of this book in the King James Version. The title in the, in the King James Version is really very appropriate. It's called The Revelation of St. John the Divine, quote unquote. But the term divine here does not is not an adjective referring to John's godly character. Rather, it's a noun that denotes one who foresees, as in a diviner, right. someone who 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 understands things that uh, the rest of the community does not. And the breadth of John's seership, the breadth of his vision encompassed uh, all earthly time and reaches uh, into eternity. Uh, the, the celestialization of this earth when it becomes uh, the celestial kingdom and a, and a great sea of glass. Um, In fact, I think it's it might be worth noting, I, I always am struck by this, when Nephi has his incredible vision of, of what's going to happen with the Nephites, but just with the, the people that Christ teaches all over the world and, and the future of the world, uh, he tells us quite a bit of that vision, but he gets to a point where the angel tells him, okay, you can see the rest, but you don't get to write the rest. 
That's going to be left to John, and it would seem John the Revelator, right? John the, yeah. the Divine or whatever. John is the one who is is tasked, of all the people who saw it, and I think Ezekiel saw similar visions and others, but of all the people who saw it, he is the one who is tasked to give us this breadth and depth of that vision. Um, and there's a part of me that feels like the angel is saying to Nephi, uh, you're not going to be able to, we're not letting you write it down because you love to write things really clearly. And that's not what needs to happen here. John is great at writing things in a way that's hard to understand. We're just going to let John do it. Um, so yeah. maybe that's tongue in cheek, but, uh, but this is the account. I, I believe this is the account that that angel was referring to when he told Nephi, uh, you're, you're going to see more, but you're not going to write about that. That's going to be John's job. Well, I think that that's pretty clear. In fact, this might be a good place to go to 1 Nephi chapter 14, uh, where we get an appreciation for what you just said uh, in uh, in Nephi's day. So John chapter 14 is... Or, or 1 Nephi 14. I'm sorry, yeah. I say John 14. 1 Nephi chapter 14 is part of the vision uh, that... Uh, Father Lehi saw and that right. Nephi saw, and it's right. sort of the tail end, actually. And uh, and we uh, can pick up the narrative in First Nephi chapter fourteen, verse eighteen. And again, this is the angel speaking to Nephi. He has a, a lot of encounters with with divine beings. It kind of freak me out, but it seems almost commonplace now for Nephi. Yeah. So First Nephi chapter fourteen. Uh, the angel says to Nephi, look, and I looked and beheld a man, and he was dressed in a white robe. And the angel said unto me, behold, one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, remember, this is somewhere around 600 BC. So, right. so Nephi is not only going to see what John will see, but he sees it 600 years before John. Yeah, so, and he sees John seeing it almost. As yeah, and he does see yeah. John seeing it. Uh, and uh, and this is where the angel says to, uh, to um, Nephi, Behold, he, meaning the one of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, shall see and write the remainder of these things, meaning not only the things that Nephi and Lehi have just seen, uh, but he's going to see more. Uh, uh, in uh, in uh, panoramic perspective, mm -hmm. and uh, in in verse twenty one, he shall see and write the remainder of these things, yea, and also many things which have been, and he shall write concerning the end of the world. Uh, wherefore, the things which he shall write are just and true, and so on and so forth. Now, if we turn over the page, this is where the angel says, uh, "Behold, this is verse twenty four. Behold, the things which." This apostle of the Lamb shall write are many things which thou hast seen, and behold, the remainder thou shalt see. But the things which thou shalt see hereafter, thou shalt not write. For the Lord God hath ordained the apostle of the Lamb that he should write them. And also others who have been, to them hath he shown all things, and they have written them, and they are sealed up to come forth in their purity, according to the truth which is in the Lamb, in the own due time of the Lord unto the house of Israel. And so if you just take a quick survey of those who have seen the things that Lehi has seen and Nephi has seen and John the Revelator will see, it's a pretty impressive list. Yeah. Ether, for example, Ether chapter 3, 
verses yeah. 22 through 27. And then Adam, section 107, verse 56 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Moses, Moses chapter 1. Mm-hmm. And and we see, um, you know, lots of And lots I suspect Enoch that as well. Have. Enoch. Yeah, I mean, we don't have all that detail, but Enoch seems to see everything. Well, and, and Joseph Smith made reference to this in a kind of a cryptic way, but probably is in Moses, Book of Moses, the vision that Enoch had. And so yeah. what what we come to, the what conclusion we come to, I think, is that Nephi and John the Apostle see the same vision, but they have a different emphasis. And the yeah. emphasis is really centered on the two comings of Jesus Christ. Nephi's emphasis is to describe the first coming of Christ, to describe things in the new world, to describe the great and abominable church, to describe the tree of life, which plays a major role or a major part in Nephi's vision. John, on the other hand, sees the second coming of Jesus Christ. He sees the or he sees the first coming, but he writes about the second yeah, coming. He emphasizes, as you he said, emphasizes yeah, that coming. he emphasizes things in the old world. He also emphasizes the great abominable church, and he also mentions the tree of life. It just doesn't play as big a part in in the things that he's tasked to write as it does in the things that Nephi's tasked to write. So, uh, and, one... and I'll even suggest if it's all right, I, Ezekiel sure. has a, a vision that has a lot of similarities to both of these, but he has a different emphasis as well. Yeah. So the, the question, you know, that, that I like to just mull around in my mind is, uh, what visions have our modern day prophets seen? Mm. And, uh, and one, uh, when one has a chance to, to ask these wonderful prophets, if we do, if we make it to where they go, uh, I'm I'm putting my money on the fact that they will describe some of this, if not everything, many of the same things that we have John and Lehi and and uh, Nephi and Enoch and Ether and Moses and Adam all from the beginning of time on. Yeah. So I just it, it's just really uh, thrilling to me to contemplate all of those who have seen this this vision and john gets the privilege of writing down uh the emphasis of the second coming rather than the first coming very good yeah so uh but maybe we, we should read one more verse from that nephi account oh, please. Just because it's the next verse verse 27 and i nephi heard and bear record that the name of the apostle of the lamb was john so right. so it is he does he yeah. knows for sure that it's john we know for yeah. sure that it's john and the other point, I guess, to just kind of think about is how valuable modern revelation is to our understanding of what's recorded in the Bible. It, the Book of Mormon is incredible in terms of what it helps us to understand, what it clarifies, what direction it points us to, w- which we would not know if we didn't have the Book of Mormon. And truly, I'm I, I am a big proponent of of the truth that the Book of Mormon is a second witness of the Savior, but it also clarifies the biblical record. That's not to denigrate the Bible. You and I have spent our whole lives learning about and teaching the Bible, but the Book of Mormon is magnificent when it comes to clarifying things that are not so clear. 
and and, and the know. angel tells Nephi that's what they're going to bear witness of each other, and yeah. I think that also means explain each other. So yeah. exactly, and we have those passages in the later books of of the Book of Mormon. Um, the the name of John's revelation in Greek is the um, Apocalypsis. Um, mm -hmm. And and it really means it, it's a Greek word, and it means to uncover, yeah. uh, to reveal. Yeah, Apo is like a way, so it means like to take yeah. away the cover, right? Yeah, exactly. And so that's uh, that's why it's called the Book of Revelation, but it's also called the Apocalypse. And then other um, revelations and other prophecies also get tagged with with this Greek term Apocalypse. Um, for example, Matthew 24, Jesus's yeah. personal prophecy of the second coming, uh, it's referred to in some circles as the little apocalypse, you know, the, yeah. the discussion. And um, some, some people refer to some of the later chapters of Daniel that way. And yeah, I think it's worth uh, discussing this because in modern usage of apocalypse tends to mean like a huge destruction at the end of the world. Uh, and okay, I can, I can understand that because it's actually taken from revelation, but, but really what it means is to uncover or to unveil or to make it yeah. so that we can see something that would be covered were we not to be, uh, having this revelation as it were. Exactly. Exactly. I think that that's a good point to keep in mind. So our discussion then of uh, this apocalypse or apocalyptic book leads us to talk just a bit uh, by way of introduction, about apocalyptic literature. And as we said, apocalypse is this Greek word, meaning the unveiling, the uncovering, the revelation, and so on. Other examples, we've really already mentioned most of the other examples of apocalyptic literature include chapters in Ezekiel and Daniel and Matthew 24 and Mark 13, and of course, the one we just read from, First Nephi chapter 14, verse, well, chapters 13 and 14, they all contain apocalyptic elements. And, and a little bit in, in ether, I think we get a little bit yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point. So one of the hallmarks or characteristics of apocalyptic literature is that chronology is irrelevant uh, in <laughs> apocalyptic writing. The writers jump back and forth through time darting from the distant past all the way to the distant future in the blink of an eye without any warning. It's like they're turning left, but they don't signal or they're, you know, forging ahead. And so in uh, the, the revelation of John, we, in one chapter, we read about two prophets uh, who will be killed at the time of the battle of Armageddon, the great uh, battle uh, before the millennium. Uh, in uh, chapter 11. But then we start talking about the war in heaven in the next chapter, chapter 12. So it's all over the place. And that's characteristic of apocalyptic literature. And um, it, it takes kind of a, a facile mind, a quick mind, uh, which prophets undoubtedly have to move back and forth through time that way. And I don't think that they're the ones that that uh, determine how these things are revealed. It's God who shows them, you know, these these things. And so um, if we want to blame John for not being very well organized and not moving through sequentially or chronologically, he didn't he isn't the one that produced the vision. It's the Lord himself. 
And, and that's kind of a fun thing to contemplate because God, as we know, uh, to God, the past, the present, the future are one eternal now, quote unquote. So time doesn't mean anything. Right. Sequential or chronological time doesn't mean anything. It's the way that divine beings look at things. And so this uh, this characteristic uh, uh, ultimately points us to the the real focus of John's revelation after back and forth, and that's uh, the future, the ultimate uh, events that will uh, bring us to the millennium. Uh, there are some additional elements to apocalyptic writing that may uh, interest some people. Number one, I would say, is symbols. Symbols are objects or messages that stand for or represent or typify other things. And so in the book of Revelation, we find a boatload. Uh, That's that's not a a scriptural term. We find (laughs) a whole lot of, of these symbols and these figures. We've got lambs and dragons and candlesticks and stars, and a white stone, and the sea of glass, and animals filled with eyes and wings, and books and seals, and the bottomless pit, and a huge cubic city, and trumpets and vials with bitter potions, and various colored horses, and white robes, and on and on and on. We even have seals on the forehead or the right hand, and we got locusts and scorpions. And so these symbols, I think, are taken from the culture in which which the person who lives receives the the vision and we we use all of these same kinds of symbols um ourselves uh you know i mean uh, i was just talking to somebody the other day who was talking about uh, a a bull market or a bear market mm. well i unless i miss my guess i don't think john would have known what we were talking about you know no or if so we, we said that he sounded like a broken record they wouldn't my kids exactly. wouldn't know. They know what it means, but they're not familiar with it. So, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, a second, um, a second element. We have uh, many types of beasts in Revelation, and some of these are easier to understand than others. Uh, but the prophet Joseph Smith made an interesting statement. "Quote: yeah. It is not very essential for the elders to have knowledge in relation to the meaning of beasts." and heads and horns and other figures made use of in revelations. I make this broad declaration that whenever God gives a vision of an image or a beast or a figure of any kind, he always holds himself responsible to give a revelation or interpretation of the meaning thereof. Otherwise, we are not responsible or accountable um, you know, to, to know what everything means. It's, it's sort of like the prophet saying, don't beat yourself up because, yeah. and don't, don't get so hyper that, you know, that you um, lose the perspective because as we know, the book of revelation is entirely, entirely about Jesus Christ yes. from start to finish. If forget the atom bombs and the hand grenades and, you know, and the, you know, the, the, the waters that are poisoned and on and on and on. It's really about Jesus Christ which is uh, very, very comforting. Uh, Third thing, numbers. In fact, we could say he is the alpha and the omega of the book of Revelation. He is. He's the beginning beginning and the end. No question about it. And if you look, you see it. It's there. 
Yeah, it is. And, and we'll, um, I know my assignment is to talk about the first three or four chapters, and we're going to get there in a minute, but I just wanted to lay the groundwork. So yeah, no, that, this is great. So people can um, can dive dive right in. Um, uh, numbers are a common element in apocalyptic writing, and you find numbers everywhere in the book of Revelation. The number three, the number seven, the number 12, the number 40. The number 666. Yeah. The number 666, which is the height of imperfection, right? Yeah. Uh, seven represents, as we've said, wholeness. Uh, the number seven, interestingly enough, occurs more than 50 times in the book of Revelation. And everything in the book of Revelation seems to be done in sevens. We have the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven significant signs and the seven, and seven last churches and churches yeah. and seven. Yeah. And and so uh, we, we just, when we get comfortable with that, I think it just opens up a whole new world. Uh, a fourth thing is a phenomena in the sky. Uh, we often read in the book of Revelation about things taking place in the heavens as well as on the earth. We have stars falling and the heavens being shaken and the moon turning to blood and a burning fire from heaven hitting the earth. And I think these signs and symbols, generally speaking, are given to us to represent the unrest in the universe, uh, the, the bad things that are happening, including uh, cosmic uh, ge geological events, but also wickedness that is increasing in the world today. Uh, also, I think it represents God's anger and the coming destruction of the wicked uh, at the end of time as we know it. And then the one that I'm really interested in, uh, just because of my uh, interest in the Dead Sea Scrolls, is cosmic dualism. Um, apocalyptic literature, in apocalyptic literature, we should say the world is a battleground between light and darkness, between good and evil, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil. And uh, this is a common element, not only in the book of Revelation, but also in John's gospel, uh, yeah. which many of our readers will remember. It's uh, it's light and dark dualism. And, uh, and I'm fascinated by the same dualism that shows up at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scroll people down by the Dead Sea, the northwest, northwest corner of the Dead Sea. Uh, the Sons of Light are the covenant members of the Qumran community. Uh, and one assumes that also in that group would be members of the uh, fourth philosophical sect called the Essenes, which Josephus talks about. But everybody else, uh, priests in the temple at Jerusalem, everybody, the Romans, you know, they're the sons of darkness. And the, the Qumran covenanters are looking for that time, uh, like the book of Revelation, when things are going to be made right and all of the sons of darkness are going to be wiped off, uh, which uh, one of my old teachers said they gleefully relished, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't like, gee, we're so concerned out of love for our, our neighbors. Yeah. Wipe them out. You know, we yeah. always want the good guys on the earth. Get them gone. Yeah. From now on. And so, I might throw in just if we're going to look at those realities, yeah. another one that I think is strong in the book of Revelation is uh, purity and pollution uh, oh, yeah. are polluted. That, that that which is pure and that which is uh, an abomination, we could say. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
So how are we to understand uh, the book of Revelation? I think uh, Elder Bruce R. McConkie's uh, seven points of understanding the book of Revelation that he wrote about decades and decades ago are still applicable. Number one, know that the book of Revelation deals with things that are to occur after New Testament times, particularly in the last days. Number two, have an overall knowledge of the plan of salvation. And that really is, a, is, a, is an important key because embedded in the, the vision is description of the plan of salvation, if you know how to look for it. So the plan of salvation really is uh, one of the central threads in, in the book of Revelation. A third thing, use various Latter-day Revelations, which expand upon the same subjects. Number four, study the sermons of Joseph Smith relative to the book of Revelation, which I, I think are becoming uh, much more available to us uh, with the work that the church history department is doing. Uh, especially, I think, valuable is the Joseph Smith translation, mm. uh, which is described in the Doctrine and Covenants as, quote, the scriptures as they are in mine own bosom, quote, unquote. That's a pretty powerful endorsement by the Lord regarding the value of the Joseph Smith translation. So we look carefully at that. And then last, uh, just seek the Spirit, pray about it. Um, pray prayer is such a, a powerful tool that we can use to understand uh, not just... Um, why certain things are happening to us in life and how we should treat our neighbor and what we can do for our family members. But understanding the scriptures, please help me to understand what this means and how I can apply it to my life and to the life of those that I care about or love. Um, I think, I think unless you have other things that you uh, want to bring up, uh, I think I've said all that, that I want to say about, by way of introduction, because you'll have others that are going to talk about uh, various yeah. aspects of the. No, I, I think that's great. Uh, maybe just uh, one other thing I would throw in is that uh, if we think of uh, one element of the Book of John, not all of it, but but one vehicle or one element of the Book of John is similar to the Pauline epistles, in that there are some specific. So Paul, John's going to address the whole future of the church but he also is concerned and especially in these first few chapters with people in the church in his day and some problems they're having and this is at this point i would assume the senior apostle um but uh this is someone who has stewardship over them and wants to teach them now the teachings are timeless they apply to us as well but this first part i think it's helpful to to think of john not only addressing all the saints for all eternity, but also thinking of some saints that he may know, but certainly that he has stewardship over in his day and not that far away places that he needs to help out. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for that. Um, chapter one of his vision is largely a description of what we've already mentioned. He, he tells us how he came to receive the vision. And also uh, introducing the central figure uh, of the vision, and that's uh, Jesus Christ, uh, and uh, and the, and that's the way that John 
begins the seven letters that he's going to write to the seven churches, maybe more, but at least seven that he names specifically uh, in chapter one with this basic introduction. And then uh, almost like an attachment, we would send in an email the bulk of the vision, which is in chapters four through 22. Yeah. And, and I, I'm quite taken uh, with, uh, with the way that Jesus Christ is introduced. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn now to, to revelation chapter one and uh, the very first verse uh, talks about the central figure Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. And the him has to be Jesus Christ there. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it's so like the book of John, where Christ is always saying, this isn't for me, this is from the Father. This starts out by saying, yeah, Christ is giving it to John. And we actually know it's an angel sent by Christ giving it to John. But yeah. Christ is giving it to John, but he received it from the Father. So that theme continues. Anyway, sorry, keep going. No, no. So things which must shortly come to pass, and then, of course, things which will come to pass uh, far in the future. So verse 4 uh, is uh, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, and the, the traditional greeting, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And uh, that uh, that terminology of uh, seven spirits, again, is interesting because I think it it's uh, really talking about the totality of servants uh, yeah. in, the, in the church that are, as we shall see, in chapter four, constantly worshiping before our Father in heaven and his Son, Jesus Christ. But this is the part that intrigues me. Verse five, uh, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And we see that imagery uh, pretty powerfully displayed in the Book of Mormon and in the Pearl of Great Price. Verse 6, and speaking of, of Jesus Christ, he hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So point number one is that we become, if, if, if we're faithful and the members of the church living at the time of John are faithful to Jesus Christ. We, through Jesus Christ, become kings and priests. And it isn't Aaronic priests, as we know. It's uh, Melchizedek priests, the same kind of priests that, that are described in the early chapters of the book of Exodus, uh, where God wants to make all of Israel a, a, a community of kings and priests, queens and priestesses. So that starts me thinking about temple imagery, mm -hmm. uh, quite frankly. Uh, and the second thing then that is apparent in this verse is the conjunction and yeah. that Jesus Christ made us kings and priests unto God and his father. Well, not to belabor the point, but the prophet Joseph Smith 
uh, went back and corrected that in the Joseph Smith translation by taking out the word and. So it just read, kings and priests unto God, comma, his father. But then years later, during the last days of his life, the prophet Joseph gave this powerful sermon in a grove of trees uh, at the Nauvoo Temple. And he said that the way that it is written in our King James Version is entirely correct. And he talked a little bit about the generation of gods, that if uh, the son had a father uh, then, and the father had a father and the father had a father, we're looking at um, the plan of salvation through uh, doing what it's supposed to do through eons and eons and ages and ages from time immemorial, time we can't even count, to make us, uh, to allow us to have all that our Father in heaven has. And I think that this is an important point that was emphasized by the prophet Joseph Smith. So some people will say, well, he, he corrected it in the Joseph Smith translation, but then years later, he went back and he said it was entirely correct. And we say, yeah, because this helps us to get a glimpse of the the way that the Lord educates his prophet, that uh, at, at one point he wants him to understand that God is literally the father of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. But over a period of time, the prophet Joseph comes to understand that the whole purpose of the gospel is to give us all that the Father has, according to section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And that means that we get just a peek, just a glimpse backwards uh, in, uh, I, I'm going to say backwards in time, but time doesn't exist among among the celestial beings, but we, we get the point. We see how the, the the gospel plan, as it was ministered in, in different eras, uh, did what it's going to do for us. And, mm -hmm. and I, I love that um, mm -hmm. thing. Uh, next verses, 7 through 10, basically uh, describe what we've just talked about, uh, where John is on Patmos and on the Sabbath day, and he has this voice uh, that says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, right to the seven churches. And then 12, verse 12 uh, onward um, gives us a description, actually, of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, uh, and Jesus Christ, of course, is the center of all of the branches of the church, as verse 13 implies, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, or the seven branches of the churches, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt with uh, about with the paps with a golden girdle. Uh, reminds one of priesthood robes, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, and, and, then, and that will happen again and again in the book of John. There, there are going to be these references that are very, very clearly to the robes of the priests. It, it, yeah, exactly. And then uh, uh, verse 15, uh, verses 14, 15, uh, where uh, he, the Savior's appearance is further described. But what strikes me is the number of similes that are used in just those two verses. Yeah. Uh, his hairs were white like wool, as white, as snow, uh, as flame of fire, like to fine brass, as a sand. And I think <laughs> what I see there is 
the use of so many similes because mortal language, particularly language in a fallen world, is inadequate to describe celestial qualities, celestial attributes, celestial characteristics. So you're kind of, you know, it's like this and it's like this, but it's not exactly like this, that kind of a thing. Yeah, in fact, I once tried to to do a study, and I, I wrote an article just on one element of this, but I, I once tried to study all these scriptural accounts of seeing God, and the, the primary impression I had is that people have a hard time describing it. it it's just so hard, yeah, to, because there literally are no words to describe it, uh, because it's such an out-of-this-world experience, and even if there were, those words wouldn't make any sense to all of us who have never experienced it. All right. I I wonder if there is a way in the Puridamic language, the language that was first revealed uh, or spoken by our first parents, if there's a better way to describe all of these things. Who knows? Well, but even so, then we it it still won't work for anyone who hasn't experienced it, right? I mean, that's right. I mean, it it, it will mean nothing. Yeah. So anyway, we we have to we have to appreciate the fact that we're working with an imperfect medium the English yeah. language, uh, and we're talking about eternal celestial things. Chapter two then uh, takes up uh, uh, introductions to the various seven churches. And what's interesting to me is that um, the Apostle John does pretty much four things in the very short introductions to each of these churches. So for example, uh, Ephesus uh, the introduction to, to the city of Ephesus is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The introduction to Smyrna is in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. The introduction to Pergamos in chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. So you don't get a lot of verbiage in these introductions. But John consistently tries to do four things, it seems to me. The first thing he tries to do is he usually offers a statement about the culture of the city as it mm-hmm. relates to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for example, to Ephesus, uh, he talks about he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's uh, verse one. Well, cr- we know Christ is the center of these churches, just as Ephesus is the center of Asia and Christianity. Uh, to, to Smyrna, Uh, He talks about the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Well, he's talking about the culture, uh, the the development in Smyrna, which had a period of time when it was destroyed and then rebuilt. Uh, But just as Smyrna was dead and is alive again, he's referencing Jesus Christ. So there are some subtle messages and on and on and on. So that happens in, uh, in all of the introductions. The second thing John does in most cases, I think maybe he doesn't do this uh, to the church at Smyrna, but he offers correction and, if necessary, con- condemnation. Uh, he's he is, sometimes um, he's he's not so harsh uh, on certain of these cities as he is other times, and so you can kind of pick out in each of these. Um, in each of these introductions where he corrects and where he uh, condemns. Uh, and then the last thing that he does in each of the introductions is he, he offers a challenge and he makes a promise. 
So, for mm-hmm. example, to Ephesus, this is uh, chap- uh, chapter 1, verse 7. So this is the last thing he's going to say by way of introduction to Ephesus. He says, quote, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Well, that that helps us to appreciate the fact that it really is the same vision that that um, that Nephi and Lehi have seen, uh, but it also um, speaks to the promise that those who are faithful will receive uh, exaltation and eternal life as they partake of the fruit of the tree, which is. Jesus Christ and his atonement. So this pattern then of these four elements of the introduction follow through pretty pretty closely uh, in all of the in, in all of the introductions. Uh, what I would like to do is, rather than just go through each of these because um, people know how to read, as I'd like to point out the promise, uh, the challenge and the promise that, the Apostle John leaves uh, to the members of the church, the, the branches of the church in each of these cities. I want to look at them in the aggregate, and then um, uh, probably you'll you'll make the the comment uh, that that I hope everybody will will reach. So in chapter two, verse seven. To the oh, and now that I'm looking at uh, verse six of chapter two, um, maybe we ought to just say uh, a word about the Nicol- uh, yeah. Nicolaitans. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a this is a group uh, which New Testament scholars call antinomians. That is to say, they're against the law. They're against, um, you know, the the commandments, basically. And uh, and they uh, they claim uh, that uh, that they have because they are Christians they claim um, that they have license for uh, sensual kinds of sins and that their ideas stemmed from one of the early leaders of the church uh, Nicholas who is uh, talked about in Acts chapter six verse five one of the temporal leaders of the church in the days of the apostles. And, and that's kind of interesting because um, he says, uh, uh, hurrah for Ephesus, the, the branch of the church at Ephesus, because uh, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, says yeah. John. So that, that might be a helpful thing. All right. So these are, this is the then the aggregate of the promises that John makes to the seven churches. Chapter two, verse seven. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter uh, 2, uh, verse 11. So this is to uh, the saints at Smyrna. Actually, um, chapter... Two verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that he may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. 
He that hath to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. We know plenty about the second death from the Doctrine and Covenants and from the Book of Mormon. Chapter 2, verse 17. This is to the saints at Pergamos. Uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the white stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. Chapter 2, uh, verse uh, 26. And he that overcometh and keepeth my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Or I, I think uh, section 76, uh, verse 15 talks, uh, uses this. It's the same context, but it says, rulers over kingdoms. To him that overcometh will I give power to be rulers over kingdoms. All right, chapter three, verse five. And so um, this is uh, to the church at Sardis. Verse five, he that overcometh the same will be clothed in white raiment. I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but will confess his name before my father. Hmm, that's interesting. Chapter three, verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. And then uh, chap uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 21 to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. So if we look at those seven promises, what comes to mind? What image is conjured by those promises? Well, well, I, to me, it's the temple. It's the, it's the temple and it's, and it's uh, the ultimate promise in the temple, which is exaltation. Mm -hmm. We become uh, just like the, the Father and the Son in terms of, of possessing power and glory. And, 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 I, and we get to enjoy their presence forever, which is the really the, the covenant is about having this, this relationship with them. I mean, we get to be with them forever. Exactly. And so uh, I guess the point that I would make is that as we know from our study of the New Testament, John is writing to a different audience than just the synoptic uh, gospels. The, yeah. he, he specifically is writing to members of the church. In the book here of Revelation, I would propose that he's not just writing to members of the church, but he's writing to members of these branches of the church who are very familiar with temple imagery and temple yeah. covenants. Yes. And I think that that's the bottom line for me is that in order for uh, any members of the church to understand the book of Revelation, uh, all of the ups and downs and all of the challenges... Uh, that it it is a great blessing to be um, associated with the temple, 
and to have made covenants there. And so for me, the book of Revelation points me and other Latter-day Saints to the temple. It's just no getting around it for me. Yeah. Um, yeah in fact, I'll, I'll, I might do uh, a little short episode to just explore some of those symbols a little bit more uh, just for the fun of it. So yeah, maybe I we'll think, do that. I think so. So chapter four is where the uh, the vision begins. This is the attachment to the generic email that goes out to the seven churches. And uh, there John sees the earth in its celestialized state, which we know will happen. Uh, the earth will be terrestrialized at the second coming and then its celestial state uh, after uh, the events of the millennial reign of Christ. And uh, and it's interesting that, that John describes um, the earth as a sea of glass like unto crystal, and he describes those that worship at the throne of God. And uh, sometimes uh, it is it is mentioned based on section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants that the four beasts that are mentioned, say, in verse 6 of chapter 4, mm. are figurative expressions describing heaven and paradise and happiness and man and uh, other living things. And that is absolutely true. I'm not arguing with that. But the prophet Joseph Smith also said that these beasts are real beasts who had lived on other worlds, not ours, and that John saw, um, how did he put it? That John saw in the celestial kingdom beings saved from 10,000 times 10,000 earths like this one. Hmm. And, uh, and that, uh, to me, is mind-boggling. Uh, are we do are do we suppose that what exists on planet Earth today is what has only existed on planet Earth and only exists on the millions of Earths like this one that God the Father created under the direction or directed His Son to create the Son created them under the direction of the Father? I think not, and so uh, the the celestial kingdom will be mind blowing. I think mm. for some of us, because uh, because of who and what we will see uh, in the kingdom from many other worlds like this, worshiping uh, our Father in heaven, and it'll be uh, and like the bar scene at uh, Star Wars. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but so. I, I, I'm being facetious, but I think you're right. It's an important point that uh, we tend to limit God by our experience. And that's going to, to be a surprise when we stop limiting him and see what he has really done. The celestial kingdom will be the biggest surprise party in the history of the universe. So says my wife's grandmother. And <laughs> well, there you go. I, I don't I don't doubt it. Uh, uh, just I think it's also if it's all right, I might, I might just point out that the, uh, chapter four is in particularly very has strong, uh, I guess, semblances of Ezekiel chapters one through three, yeah. uh, but especially chapter one. I mean, where you see similar beasts and similar descriptions of the throne and so on and so on. And and so, uh, again, I, I think we have a lot of prophecy in this vision. 
Absolutely. or something similar. It may not be exactly the same every time. No, no question about that. So very quickly, uh, let me outline what follows after uh, chapter four. And I, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but just uh, give a rundown, a summary of the coming attractions. Uh, we've already talked about um, aspects of the future celestial kingdom in chapter four. Uh, in chapter five, uh, John sees a vision within the vision uh, to prepare him and others for the rest of the vision. Uh, and basically, again, it centers on Jesus Christ and one who can execute our Father in Heaven's plan. Uh, and it does it by using the image of a book sealed with seven seals. And uh, these seals guard against and guide us against defilement. Um, and, uh, and of course, John is only shown a part of the plan before he weeps. He says, you know, how, how can, you know, who, who can unseal the seals? Yeah. And, and then, um, and I don't mean this any disrespect, but it's almost like uh, John sets us up to say, ah, the hero has arrived. And the hero is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the power to, to uh, open the seven seals, or maybe we could say he has the power to put into effect our Father's plan and all the different ages of humankind or all the different uh, time frames um, from beginning to end. He's the one that is the the centerpiece uh chapter six then begins um, um a description of six thousand years of the earth's temporal history or the six seals the emphasis seems to be placed uh, on the last part of the seal or our day or the time in which we have uh, been living but there's a very uh, a very important uh, other point to be made here and that is in the description of the six seals, we note that warfare seems to be, uh, what would you call it, the major theme uh, uh, of the seals or the major theme in the history of the world, in the salvation history of the world. Uh, that is to say, war and destruction um, on this earth is sponsored by is promoted by the adversary by satan and war and destruction in the temporal uh period of of earth's history is really an extension of war in heaven the the battle that took place in our pre-mortal existence has now been transferred uh, to this earth uh, when Satan was expelled from the heavenly courts. And yeah. that's why John, I think, uses this image of war and destruction, because that's what Lucifer is all about uh, after he's cast down, because he's the one thing that he has in mind is to destroy the plan of our Father in heaven and to make all men miserable like unto himself. Yes. And, but the Re book of Revelation answers that by saying uh, he, he he knows, however, that he has but a short time to do what he's going to do. And so he is 
um, he's marshaling all of his efforts. Anyway, this this the, the sixth seal followed uh, uh, by uh, the seventh seal, and chapter seven uh, is an interlude uh, before things get cranked up. This idea of um, slowing things down, calming John, calming us um, before we see what's going to happen. Uh, the events of the seventh seal and chapters eight, nine, and 11 talk about the battle of Armageddon um, <clears throat> chapters 12, 13, and 14. We get the flash backwards and flash forwards uh, during periods. Chapter 14 talks about the restoration of the gospel. Chapter 16 is kind of a repetition of chapters eight, nine, and 11. We get a description of the battle of Armageddon chapters um, 17 and 18. Uh, talking about uh, why the earth must fall. Chapter 19, the second coming, showing the true nature of Christ. Chapter 20, the millennial reign of Christ and the final judgment. Chapter 21, the celestialization of the earth. And then chapter 22, this epilogue, uh, which where we're taken back to John's day. <clears throat> so why does, why does God give us all of this information uh, to through his prophets and uh, I at this I want to bear my testimony that it is not to scare us but rather it's to increase our faith in Jesus Christ he will come off conqueror in every instance he will make right what was made wrong because of the fallen nature of this earth. Um, it gives us hope, I believe, for the future as we face, uh, shall we say, deepening difficulties, that the Lord knows what's going to happen. The Lord is in charge, and he will bring about his purposes, which are shaped and mitigated uh, around his greatest attribute, which is perfect love for each of us. Everything that he does is is done uh, out of his his great love. And that is what John also testifies of in, in, uh, in the first of his epistles, that God is love, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean he isn't, he isn't a, um, a person with a, a body of flesh and bone. It means that that that's he, the essence of who he is, the essence yeah. of his personality. His primary characteristic. Yeah. That is it. Everything he does is shaped by that. And I bear testimony of that, and I'm grateful that we have the book of Revelation and want to continue studying it for the rest of my life, and uh, hopefully others will uh, desire the same thing. Uh, amen. Uh, what a powerful introduction. And just so many good things in there and a nice overview. Uh, I hope that uh, we can look at those those things that John is is teaching us and figure out how they apply to us. Uh, I think you've done a great job of taking us there. So thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks again for your kindness and for your um, your ability to, to lead the discussion and to guide us to the place where we want to go. I, it's been a privilege. Thank you. Wow. Wow, it's been been great. So we hope it's been helpful for uh, others and that uh, you share at least the ideas and maybe even the podcast with others and that uh, you're edified and blessed and that this uh, just drives you back into the scriptures 
uh, and and allows you to draw more out of them, and that uh, will, as you spend time in the scriptures, that the Holy Ghost will attend you and and teach you and edify you in the way that you need. So uh, thanks for leading us through that, Andy, and thanks to uh, our audience. And uh, we won't mention by names the sponsors that have really, really made this possible, but so grateful for that as well. So thank you, everyone. All right, so this has been fantastic, but next week we want to invite you to come back again. And before we do that, uh, I also let you know we've got two episodes this week. So we have uh, Phil Allred, who you may remember. He's one of the people's favorite. Uh, my audience loves Phil and his favorite guest. And he does some really powerful stuff with uh, Revelation chapter five. So tune in for that. And we also want to remind you that we're hoping to get some questions. We're going to have an episode where we answer questions that you ask either about the podcast or about gospel questions or about the New Testament or the Book of Mormon or whatever you want to ask about Egypt. I don't care what. Uh, I can teach you how to water ski while online, whatever you want. So just email in questions to the scriptures are real at gmail.com. And then next week we'll have Jason Combs. will walk us through revelation chapter six through 14. That's going to be a lot of fun. We're making a really exciting announcement, at least exciting for me about a project we've been working towards for a while. And we're just about ready to, to launch it. So we're just giving you a sneak preview. It's called enlighten edge edu. This is a, this is kind of like my own little university I'm trying to open where I've thought there's so many things that I would like to get out there and make available for uh, the wonderful Latter-day Saints that I know and love and that are hungry for things. So I'm going to put out some uh, articles and handouts that I've created for my classes that I want to make available for you, uh, lectures that I've done in different places, workshops that I've done in different places. I'm going to eventually be creating classes and master courses uh, and having dialogues with others. We're going to invite others. I'm going to invite my colleagues to put things on. We're going to have mental health things. Uh, and eventually we're going to have some books and uh, other things available as well. So more is coming forth on that, but we have all sorts of stuff that we're ready to do on it already. And uh, so hopefully this will be up soon and you can think about it for Christmas gifts for others. I'm really excited about this initiative.